Welcome to the Kung Fu Podcast. I'm your host, T.W. Smith. In today's podcast, I'm going to tell you the true story of how Chinese Kung Fu arrived into the West in 1851. I'd like to thank Ben Juckins at Chinese Martial Studies. He sends out a wonderful newsletter called Kung Fu Tea. Westerners knew of Chinese fighting systems during the 19th century. Because of globalization, marketplaces were no longer restrained to the boundaries of a single country. Steamships, telegraphs, and trains lowered the price of trading goods and of information, while at the same time, globalization increased the consumption of all of those. The last imperial dynasty was the Qing dynasty. It began in 1644 and lasted till 1912. China was self-sufficient, and the emperor forbid European tradesmen into the interior of China. There were laws against smuggling, and particularly against opium, into China. Nathan Dunn was a very decent U.S. businessman and a sailor. In 1818, he had began trading in Canton for tea and spices. Mr. Dunn developed a very good reputation with his Chinese partners because of his compliance to the laws. He was successful and opened the Chinese Museum in Philadelphia in 1838 with the catalog 10,000 Chinese Things. One of the things he had, and I'm looking at the picture here, and if you go to download the PDF file, you'll be able to see it, is one of the things he had in that catalog of 10,000 things were dwarf trees. Some had fruits, but most of it are like the bonsai trees that we know of. Europeans wanted the goods, particularly silk, fabric, spices, and the teas from China. The problem was China would only take gold and silver as payment. They wouldn't trade with the foreigners. It ended up triggering a silver shortage in Europe. But what did happen is that the Europeans found that they could trade very addictive opium to the Chinese working class. At a point there, the Chinese officials stopped the smuggling of 20,000 chests. 2.6 million pounds of opium was halted. Now, the European government could could not come out and argue that China was wrong for stopping drugs entering their country. But the Europeans were having such a difficult time with the silver shortage, and they were getting frustrated because they were wanting the goods, it triggered the First Opium War, 1839 through 1842. For the most part, it was started to establish trade routes. This is where the first British iron ship, the Nemesis, was sent into action. It had massive guns and even had a rocket launcher as part of its artillery. The Time magazine said it was perfect for opium smuggling. Because it had an iron hull, it had a problem because of the effect it had on the compass. Navigation was always very tricky on the Nemesis. I'm looking at a picture here of the Nemesis sitting outside of China's coast, which it had arrived in. The huge cannons are blowing these Chinese what are called Shao, selling ships, out of the water here on the coast. Again, if you get a chance, look at it. We are between 1845 and 1848. It's just after the First Opium War, and it's before the Second Opium War that started in 1856. At the time, law forbid the sale of Chinese ships to foreigners. The naval system was the primary form of trade transportation. There was the Silk Road that existed, but naval systems were the primary form. 
Pirates were everywhere, especially in southern China. The South China Seas were littered with pirates, just like the Silk Road was packed with bandits. Entering the story, the Qi Ying, Xiao, a sailing vessel, cargo vessel, that was named after a Manchu official. It was purchased in August 1846 in secrecy by a Britishman located in Hong Kong. The Qi Ying was bought first under false pretenses, under false papers, with the full intention to break the law and to hoodwink and kidnap 30 Cantonese sailors. I'm looking at a picture here of the king, a magnificent-looking sailing vessel, and you can see on the handout at the bottom where it has Captain Kellett's name. He was the captain of the ship, who was also a Britishman. Captain Kellett never intended to deliver the goods and returned as he had promised. His plan was to have the Chinese Museum, like Mr. Dunn's earlier, except Mr. Dunn, who did his the right way, in a, in a professional way, these gentlemen were going to go around doing it in whatever way they could to be most profitable. And in fact, they were also going to bring along the indigenous crew, the Cantonese sailors. Now, after his intentions were discovered, Captain Kellett actually had to hold the sailors by force and arms in order to keep them on the ship. Now, the king took the journey through the Indian Ocean and rounded the Cape Horn. Four and a half months after she left docks, she landed in St. Helena to get supplies. The next stop, the king was the first ship from China to ever arrive in New York on July 9, 1847. The marketing created a stir, and over 5,000 people a day came to see her. Twenty-six of the Cantonese Chinese crew returned to Canton on a ship called the Candace, which had sailed out October 6, 1847, from New York. After that, the Keying went to Boston, where it was also profitable, but it was not at the same level as it had been in New York. After a short period of time, it was off to the United Kingdom. Now, I made a map here that lays out the path of the king through the Indian Ocean around the Cape Horn. You can look at that through 1847, and it's amazing how far this trip was and how long it actually took them. But you can see also why they did not tell the crew people, the Cantonese crew, about the trip because none of them would have wanted to make it. They were almost, it almost took them a year to get to New York. The Qiying is coming. Marketing in the United Kingdom stirred the European people. There were flyers and articles promoting the arrival. In fact, I'm looking at one here, a flyer that promoted the arrival of the Qiying. And at the bottom it states, one step across the entrance, and you are in the Chinese world. And it's got this magnificent sketch of the Qiying. And it's manned by a Chinese crew. This was a business venture. It was a time to profit, but it was also a time to humiliate the Chinese, those that they had been in battle with during the First Opium War. And for the longest time, the Qiying was simply a floating museum that people would pay ticket price to go on and see. I'm looking at a picture here of the deck of the Qiying, where it has lanterns and a large number of folks gathered around watching the crew put on a Kung Fu exhibition. 
Bringing the Chinese culture down was also part of the propaganda that was put out during that time. For so long, during the 18th and 19th century, China was held in such a high standard. Because of their isolation, they had always kept themselves separate. There was still a lot of tension due to the trade in China, which, as we mentioned before, would lead eventually to the Second Opium War. The emperor of China and the officials continued to resist European trade, even after the First Opium War, which made them a target for ridicule. After the king had been a floating museum for a long time, in Europe they began what was called the Great Exhibition. And in 1951 there was an interest for cultural shows, and so wonders around the world were put on display. For example, India sent these elephants, and Captain Kellett took advantage by staging demonstrations twice a day. This became the earliest account of a large-scale Chinese martial arts demonstration in the United Kingdom and possibly in all of Europe. It attracted the notice of such people such as Charles Dickens, who actually wrote about it later, Prince Albert, and even Queen Victoria. The Kung Fu shows included forms, two-man weapon sets, and they were staged to traditional music. They were staged to represent the wushu type of demonstrations that were presented in the marketplaces as they were done in China. But you have to remember that these were not Chinese performers. These were at best random sailors that were put on for demonstration and paid, if not coerced, into performing. I'm looking here at a flyer for the Qing shows. On it, it states that there is a Chinese artist of celebrity present and that you'd be met with a ma- by a Mandarin of rank. Understanding martial culture is essential to understanding Chinese culture. This is one of the first times that Chinese culture was ever being observed outside of China through the presentation of Kung Fu. Remember that these were not Chinese performers of Kung Fu, but they were sailors. At the end of the page here, you'll see the resources listed. And again, I'd like to thank Mr. Ben Juckins, the author of Kung Fu Tea. In here, you'll see his Facebook link and in the shows. And if we'd like to hear from you and what you think, do you have a good story? Do you have an event coming up? You can find us here at KungFuPodcast.com. The logo, Mr. Hop, that you'll see is our mascot. You can find find him and us at Twitter, Facebook, Google. And a little bit more about me, your host, T.W. Smith. I hope you enjoyed the story of how Kung Fu arrived in Europe in 1851, selling on the ship called the King E. Thanks a lot for joining us.